Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Are you enjoying this uh, ongoing national bitching tour put on by big city mayors presenting as solutionists to a problem they in part and their party in larger part created eric adams on the detestable morning joe program well i believe that when i took the trip to the el paso you could see firsthand the impact of how it not only uh, harm the foundation of El Paso, but look at Chicago, Houston, Washington, New York City. This is just unfair for cities to uh, carry the weight of a national problem. We are going to open four more uh, hotels, emergency hotels. We have to open Herc's. Uh, this is a major financial impact on New York City and cities across this country that are receiving a brunt of it. Oh, so it, sad, is too it unfair? bad. Is it unfair? Is that unfair for sanctuary cities? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. I think you reap what you sow. You brought this upon yourself. You support a president who's letting people cross the border by the thousands every day, and they can't handle it. I mean, El Paso, are you kidding me? There's not even room on the streets in certain wards. In the second ward, there, there are people everywhere. And some people don't want to get on the buses because they're afraid that there's, you know, something you know, incendiary behind it that if they get on the bus, they're going to be taken back to their home country. So they're just staying there. So they can't handle it. So too bad. Uh, Eric Adams uh, on the federal response that he uh, is demanding, in addition to, of course, everybody's cash that he's demanding. I was told that we have a an individual that's coordinating the operation. And as I shared with White House officials, why don't I know who that is? Uh, it's about having a real decompression strategy, looking at who's coming in and ensuring that it is really uh, burdened by the entire country, not just a few cities. And just the pathway continues to lead to New York. We have to have a real comprehensive immigration policies. And I think that the Republicans have blocked it for many years. Uh, we have to come to the table to do so. But that's a long-term plan. What's the short-term plan? If my house is burning, I don't want to hear about fire prevention. Let's put out the fire. And the fire right now is the overproliferation of migrant and asylum seekers in several cities in, in several cities in the country. And I hear, I continue to hear a description from the uh, Eric Adamses and the triple threats and and the Muriel Bowser's and the Karen Basses now that she's been installed in L.A. Keep hearing a description of the problems they're facing and how unfair it is. I don't hear uh, a, a prescription. I don't hear 
a remedy in terms of putting out that fire Eric Adams describes. I just hear a description and a call for money, and it's unfair. Oh, boy. Uh, welcome to the party, Eric Adams. Well, Mayor Lightfoot originally asked, <clears throat> excuse me, Governor Pritzker for $53.5 million, and the state legislature only gave her $20 million, and she's still complaining about it. She needs more money, Dan. Where is she going to put all the people? The, the, 5, unfairness, people. the unfairness That's of nothing. it all. That's nothing. The unfairness of it all. Really. How unfair is it to, um, has it been to Kate Steinle's family and her? How, how unfair has it been to the McCann family uh, here in Chicago? The Brady family in uh, Mahomet, Central Illinois. Jeannie Brady killed on her way home from work by a person in this country illegally drunk, driving the wrong way on a uh, exit ramp. Uh, tell us more about unfairness. And Republicans blocking comprehensive immigration reform. Actually, the only thing Republicans have blocked is border security. You know, with the exception of President Trump's efforts during his time as president. I, I want to hear more about this unfairness of the system. As you have had hundreds of thousands of American families suffer a uh, suffer as victims of people in this country illegally who've committed crimes against them. And I, I go back to this every single time on this issue because it's the beginning and end of the conversation for me on immigration if uh, if this is not addressed. And that is, if you cannot prevent, number one, and remove, to the extent that prevention is not 100%, because nothing is, remove people in this country illegally, who are here illegally, who have committed crimes, then I have nothing to discuss with you. Then you go ahead on your bitching tour on these detestable cable shows, and good luck in New York as you embrace the lawlessness at the border that has led to so many American families being victimized by people who should not be in this country. And it's in Iowa, too. I mean, remember Molly Tibbetts? She was out for a run yes. in 2018, and she was killed by a 27-year-old who was here illegally. How unfair was that to Molly Tibbetts and her family? Oh. Tell me about unfairness, Eric Adams. And, 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 and as I repeat on this topic, because we address it a lot because it's important and there's developments all the time, I'm a pro-legal immigration guy, but you just shut me down when you cry about the consequences of your actions and pretend that you're a solutionist. Talk about layers of insult. And you can't get the two political parties together to accomplish this singular thing that they both say they want and neither acts in furtherance of it because we're not going to do anything until we can do everything we want. And it keeps the situation in stasis with the exception of a disruptive moment when Trump was in the White House. Chris in North Aurora, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan. Hey, Amy. Love your show. Thank you. Hey, I just don't understand. You know, I, I, I have a heart for all these people that are wanting to come to America and to get a better life, but don't, we have so many homeless people with mental illnesses in this country 
And I am just ashamed of our, our system for not helping them. I see, I see groups building tents under bridges on, on California and diversity, Everywhere. helping people. It's crazy. I just don't understand where's the disconnect with our system and helping our own people. Thanks for the call, Chris. Uh, yeah. Well, a group of uh, 20 uh, Republican-led states suing the Biden administration because under Mr. 10%, the big guy, President Biden, we don't have border patrol. We have border parole. Texas and 19 other states filed the suit asserting that the Department of Homeland Security had effectively created a visa program without congressional approval by announcing it will permit up to 360,000 aliens annually from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela to be paroled, quote-unquote, into the United States for two years or longer and with eligibility for employment authorization. Are you, are you familiar with this border parole program for, the, for uh, migrants from these specific countries, these four uh, countries? And you you wonder why people throw up their hands. This is and uh, the suit is exactly right. Not only is this a bad idea, uh, it's also being done extra constitutionally. It is not the within the power of the Department of Homeland Security to create these sorts of programs without congressional authorization. And that's where it's at. Craig in Mount Greenwood. Oh, hey, good morning, Dan. Amy, and uh, thanks for taking my call. You know, we got this new, now new Republican, uh, you know, uh, group in here and everything. That everybody knows this is a, a threat to our uh, national security, to our health with regard to uh, thing, diseases coming in and everything like that. Why can't they just impeach not only Biden, but the whole regime that is, is, is doing all of this and end it? I mean, we're... Where's somebody in the government that realizes everything that you're talking about and everything that we, the American people can see as clear as day? Thanks Doesn't for the make- call, Craig. Just I build mean, the wall. <laughs> Put it up. Well, sure. And, I mean, again, I just, you know, because they've been in the system, people who've committed crimes. And what is the posture of big uh, city illegal immigrant sanctuaries and county and state in the case of Chicago, Cook and Illinois. We're not going to cooperate with ICE to right. uh, uh, to to turn them over to ICE so that a, a person convicted of a crime can be removed from this country. Yeah, That happens in Arizona. Once they get out, if they're serving time, they serve their time, then they get out and they're immediately handed over to ICE. In fact, Sheriff Arpaio had an office next to the Maricopa County Jail. So it was, you know, boom, boom, out, and then they deport you. But here, nothing. We don't do anything like that. And what are we hearing from the Chicago mayoral aspirants? I mean, triple threat is known quantity. She's been in for four years. What are we hearing from the others? With the exception of Willie Wilson saying at the debate last week that, uh, you know, I'm for, you know, people want to make a life for themselves in America and all that, but we got a lot of problems as chris from north river saying we got a lot of people with problems right here that that need to be prioritized we got to take care of our own essentially was his point and uh he was the only one that made any sort of statement in that direction 
So it doesn't uh, augur well for the direction Chicago will go, regardless of who the next mayor is. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That's some easy listening. It's almost oh, yeah. like Muzak. Come on, let's, <laughs> let's, let's amp it up a little bit here. So we're not in an elevator. Yeah. This is like a 70s soft rock. Ugh. Oh, terrible. Uh, All right. uh, President Biden, uh, the big guy. March of last year. In March of last year, he said this about arming the Ukrainians in their fight against the Russians. The idea, the idea that we're going to send in offensive equipment and have planes and tanks and trains uh, going in with American pilots and American crews. Just understand, and don't kid yourself, no matter what you all say, that's called World War Three. Okay? Okay, okay. Uh, Joe Biden yesterday. <laughs> Today, I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. The Abrams tanks are the most capable tanks in the world. <clears throat> They're also extremely complex to operate and maintain. So we're also giving Ukraine the parts and equipment necessary to effectively sustain these tanks on the battlefield. And we begin, we'll begin to train the Ukrainian troops on these issues of sustainment, logistics, and maintenance as soon as possible. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. So World War Three then? is on the menu i mean i'm just going by what he said exactly i mean there's a lot of vacillation and flip-flopping there in the biden white house but they wanted european countries to deliver equipment and germany flat out said well we're not going to do it unless you do it and so now germany Germany is doing it yes they're sending 14 leopard 2 battle tanks to ukraine um uh, in addition to, so that would be in addition to the uh, Abrams tanks that the United States is sending. I mean, could this end up being a 100-year war, and this is indefinitely, this is in perpetuity, like keep repeating it, repeating it? Well, Giving uh, money, giving millions here, giving billions there, giving equipment. Well, I think there's there's two things. There's one is that 
yes, the duration of our commitment. The uh, second is the escalation of said commitment. You know, these things tend to start with uh, economic and military aid and then some advisors and then, you know, uh, not always, but then all of a sudden you have American lives on the line with boots on the ground in these theaters of war. I'm, I'm sure nobody's going to suggest that we're, we're not talking about troops. That's not on the table, but it's always on the table. And well, it's a troops? and it's a political calculation, not almost always, as opposed to it, you, is this in America's best interest to, to be involved? Is this in our national security interests? It's when they do these war games. Oftentimes, the question, yes, it will be, you know, the decision has been made that it's in our our national security interests. And so let's war game this out. Let's try to figure out what the uh, what the various scenarios would produce. And then once we have some guesstimates about what could happen, best case to worst case scenario, then the, the contemplation is, well, what will the American people tolerate? You know, how many lives lost, for example, how much money spent? I mean, what will they tolerate? So strange because the U.S., you know, we officially or the Biden administration hesitated sending these Abram tanks to Ukraine because they said they were too complicated and too difficult to maintain. And that has well, abruptly changed now. Yeah. And you heard him also say, I mean, you could argue that what he said in March of last year was, well, you know, I was talking about saying tanks and planes and having Americans operate them. That's what I meant. That would be World War Three. Well, OK, so. You're you're a half a step from your World War Three declaration. Uh, in addition to that, I mean, to the point of of duration, uh, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby fielded some questions yesterday, and he had uh, this to say uh, about uh, the duration. I think we need to prepare ourselves that uh, to uh, to to continue to to have to continue to support Ukraine for, for quite some time. I can't. Uh, I don't, we don't know how quite some time, how much quite some time is, how much time that is, because, as he said, you know, I can't be predictive here, but um, it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon because Putin doesn't look like he's going to throttle down anytime soon. Something else John Kirby also said yesterday <laughs> remarkable given the news of the day but he was asked by phil wegman from realclearpolitics.com about uh, the aid that has been given and whether it's all been put to good use you said previously in your assessment of both military and economic aid to ukraine that at this point thus far you haven't seen any signs of corruption or misuse correct oh correct uh-huh. Several high-profile Ukrainian officials were fired or resigned on Tuesday as President Zelensky seeks to contain allegations of corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the uh, ousters follow allegations the Ukrainian military was overpaying for food for Ukrainian troops. Deputy Defense Minister Shapo, Shapo, Shap, um, Shapovalov resigned following the allegations. Uh the ministry called the accusations unfounded and baseless, but nonetheless, the resignations happen. The deputy head of Ukrainian of uh, President Zelensky's office resigned. No reason was given, but this guy 
Timoshenko had been criticized in local media for the lavish lifestyle and use of government resources. Hmm. Deputy Prosecutor General has been dismissed. Five regional governors are gone. Two deputy ministers from the Ministry of Development of Communities and Territories. The infrastructure, the deputy infrastructure minister was detained over a weekend following allegations of embezzling 400 grand. Jeez. So, I mean. uh, Well, I mean, we keep throwing billions at them, not just us, but other countries, other allies. Well, I know. But I mean, it's the John Kirby uh, corruption. What corruption? I don't see any corruption. I mean, these guys, honestly. Because he was at the White House briefing room in place of Jean uh, KJP. Uh, yeah, because she was just going to refer all to questions to the White House Counsel's exactly. office. Exactly. So. Nick, Northwest Side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yes, thank you for taking my call, and you always have a nice show, both of you guys. Thank you. Uh, I was saying that uh, this is a symbolic move by the United States to give these M1 Abrams uh, tanks. It's going to be a long time before they get there, and the training involved is going to be a long time to get them uh, rolling. But the thing is, it allowed Germany to say, okay, others are uh, willing to chip in. And because of the history of wars and all that, I, I lived there for a year and a half in the early 70s. Uh, the, there's a concern about people there, about their image, you know, and, and understandably, and it's good to have that. Uh, and then that allows the other countries, which have some kind of a agreement, uh, uh, who have those Leopard 2 tanks, uh, have an agreement to, uh, to not just give them to somebody unless Germany approves. So that that's good they're doing this, but this is, uh, uh, unfortunately, looks like it's going to be dragging on. I hope it doesn't drag on past this year, but who knows what's going to happen. Uh, Putin knows that little by little, if he keeps whittling it down, uh, he might weaken the whole country where physically uh, won't sustain itself. And that's, that's going to be dangerous because of all the countries that, there's a few countries that are NATO members that border Ukraine, right. and they'd be right up against them. Okay, and that's it. Thank you. Thanks for the call. If he takes Ukraine, Poland's next, don't you think? And who knows about Sweden and Finland and Baltic states? Yeah, I I get the uh, revanchist argument. We've uh, discussed it a lot on the on the program. Um, The other thing that's happening with Putin, at least according to reports on it, is he's uh, conscripting a lot more Russians. He's replacing all the war dead. And, uh, you know, there's all this scuttlebutt that he's planning some major offensive in the spring. Mm-hmm. So, right, in, in terms of duration, can't predict. Uh, Nick on the northwest side is right. It was even mentioned at the press conference yesterday. It will take a while for the tanks to get there. It will take a while to train Ukrainian military on the use of those tanks. So better settle in. And that seems to be the posture of this administration and, frankly, both parties. Uh, a lot of calls on this. It's great. Uh, well, you know when you when you invoke World War Three, yeah, people's I mean, ears people perk up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad Saint they care G- about something, Dan. Jim in St. Joe, Michigan. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. I think what the American people need to understand is that uh, my brother-in-law is an ex-army uh, tank commander, and uh, we were talking, and those guys, those crews, are in training for about nine months. Then they go to California and train out in the desert or out from Yakima, Washington. So they're going to have to send military people there to teach these gentlemen how to run these tanks. Plus, not only that, uh, you just can't open up an owner's manual uh, that's bigger than a bread box. And plus, they're going to have to send technicians and mechanics to show them how to fix anything that goes wrong on these these tanks. Right. So So we'll have troops in a long time. 
Yeah, well, that's that's yeah, exactly, Jim. That's exactly right, and that that was essentially described, although the there wasn't a particular time horizon given. But that what you're describing was presented at the press conference. So don't think these good things are going to be rolling through the streets of Kiev tomorrow because it is going to take some time to train. Uh, so I mean that, and that also says says something about what, even though they can't give us a specific. projected duration it says something about what it, it or speaks to what john kirby said which is uh quite some time better get better settle in and be ready to support this effort for quite some time that's not months uh bill northwest side good morning dan and amy we've uh, we've seen this movie before haven't we vietnam it starts it starts with advisors and it starts with sending equipment that's kind and of then it starts with sending yeah. Starts with sending more people, and all of a sudden, fast forward, and we have 58,000 of our troops dead. So this is how it begins. We've seen it before. Thanks for the call, Bill. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean it has to end that way. I mean, you know, we armed the Mujahideen, and uh, they were able to repel the Soviets without uh, ground troops uh, in Afghanistan. But so it can go that way, too. And and maybe the Ukrainians will be able to repel the Russians on their own. Hopefully that's the case. But, but we'll see. And by the way, um, you know, the, the nature of military leadership, like the Lloyd Austins and the Mark Milleys of the world, those, those two generals, that's seated at the right hand of Mr. of the yeah, big guy. I saw him behind him. Uh, you know, that's a, a source of additional concern. What the military is becoming under the stewardship of people like Millie and Austin, when you're talking about now war. Uh, Tom Blue Island. Hey, Dan and Amy, good morning. Uh, Dan, you hit it a few seconds. I'm stunned by the dearth of coverage over the corruption in the Zelensky administration. What corruption? And then almost on this next day, we go from just sending money to sending troops. Yet I wanted to make a comment to what Nick said a few calls ago. He intimated that it's the United States that needs to send tanks to influence the Germans to send tanks. Germany, Ukraine, and Russia are historic enemies It should be the other way around. It should be all the countries around Russia trying to influence the United States, not the other way around. That's crazy talk. But that well, but what? Well, it's not. But that's not what it is. Mm -hmm. Olaf Schultz, thanks for the call, Tom. But that's not. I mean, maybe that's what it should be. But that's not what it is. Nick was describing what it is, and what it is is Olaf Schultz wasn't going to move on this until and unless Biden did. That's just where things stand, and frankly. That's basically the posture of Western Europe, too. Let's just be real. I mean, remember who's in charge of these countries? These are a bunch of P-hat socialists. Well, just like the one in charge of this country. But right. but, but you know, they want the lead P-hat socialists to make a move before they feel they've got the cover to make a move. John in Portage Park. Hi, my comment was about the, the, the fuel system for the uh, M1 Abram, and it's it's basically a blend of jet fuel, and it can't be used. You can't use the diesel fuel like you were using a Leopard in the Abrams. It's a really complicated system, and I don't know uh, 
Are you? Where, are you? Are you? Are you former military? Yeah, a long time ago, I used to work not work on them, but I was familiar with them. And okay. that they they were putting they were putting like jet fuel. It's closer to what you would put in a B fifty two than a Leopard tank. And also, don't you think it's like the Spanish Civil War right now, when we were back in we were back in you know, like the Republicans and the Nazis were back in the Franco, Franco and the yeah fascists. Mm-hmm. I think it's really similar. Similar. Oh well, thank you very much. Have thanks, a good- for the, thanks for the call, John. Appreciate that, Marty Naperville. Yeah, three quick things. Number one, look at John Kirby's eyes when he talks. That guy ain't got a clue about anything. He's always whatever. Uh, number two, I forgot. But number three, okay. uh, I don't think Zelensky asked for tanks. I think. He was during one of his idiotic speeches where he's begging for money and thanking for me. He said he was trying to say tanks as in thanks. Okay. And the open White House thought yeah. it was tanks, so right, now he's right. studying tanks. Yeah, it's a failure to communicate. Right. Just, Thanks for the call, It's Marty. such a strange war. I mean, he's on the cover of Vogue with his wife, and it's social media has changed all aspects of war. He's a celebrity. I know, I know. And I know he was a celebrity before, and he won Dancing with the Stars in Ukraine. I got yeah, that. Yeah. he's a you, comedian. And... Yeah. Did you, see, you ever see that uh, routine he did with his uh, comedic partner, the, the penis dance that he did? I never saw that one. Oh, well, you should look it up. Okay. It'll it inspire a lot of confidence. <laughs> really? Okay. Maybe really? That's... Should I Google this, or am I going to get in trouble with the HR? No. I Google uh, No, it's not, it's not. It's not. Well, no. I mean, no. And it's, but I mean. I don't know. Maybe that's what encouraged Putin watching that video. Uh, Mike and Union. Morning, Dan and Amy. How are oh, you? Boy. Hey, when, when can we when can we count on uh, was it Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel Vimlin for coming out and saying that there's no corruption and maybe some transcripts uh, uh, of phone calls between Biden and uh, the Ukrainian president? Um, any yeah. any hopes of seeing any of that? You yeah, know? right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. thanks for the call, Mike. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, get a readout from Vinman on uh, the conversation between uh, Biden and and uh, mm. and Zelensky, and maybe a, another prosecutor got fired. I, t- I mentioned one of the people fired under cl- clouds of suspicion and corruption was a prosecutor. You know how Biden likes to push the Ukrainians to fire prosecutors right. that may be looking at Burisma or Hunter. Right. His last visit as VP was to get rid of that prosecutor who was part in charge of Burisma. Yeah. Although I got to tell you, now, per our, the story we covered before the news at the bottom of the hour about uh, you know the bitching tour that these big city mayors are on, like Eric Adams. So here's an idea: Hey, if if Abrams tanks are good enough for the Ukrainians to defend their borders, then why don't you send some Abrams tanks to Eric Adams in New York? Good luck, Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. An AM 560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. President Trump is uh, free to join us again on Facebook and Instagram and Post photos of a life he's supposedly leading, just like the rest of us do. Yeah, he's back. Woohoo! Nick Clegg is the um, president of global affairs for Meta, and he was on with our friend Brett Baer last night, explaining the decision on Trump. So he, he was suspended for two years from using Facebook and Instagram, and that two-year clock expires now this month. And so we're confirming that if he wants to, he, he can, in the coming weeks, he can use Facebook uh, and Instagram again. Um, I mean, of course, there are guardrails, there are rules. He's got to play by the, the rules. And we're announcing some additional ones today to encourage him to, to, you know, to stick to the rules that, 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 that exist when, when people use Facebook and Instagram. At the end of the day, we believe the American people should hear... Uh, from including on on our apps and services from those who want to who want to lead them and he's a former president of the of this country uh, vying to be a candidate for the next presidential elections and we don't really want to all other things be equal um you know stand in the way so we think it's right to let the two-year suspension now expire if i mean it's up to him and his team if he wants to use facebook and instagram he's now free to do so Mm -hmm. Thank you so oh, much. Wow. Thank, your, let me your bow lordship. to you. Yes. yes. Oh. And by the way, uh, Nick Clegg uh, is, uh, as you could tell, is British. He's a former deputy prime minister. He was a member of the parliament there as well. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. Well, the arrogance of that man. But there'll be parameters and new ones coming out today. Pound sand. You know, you got rid of me. I'm not bringing it. Trump was good for Facebook, and I'm not calling them meta, but whatever. He was good for them. He was good for Instagram. Well, I, I love the, you know, at the end of the day, there's the the high-mindedness, the phony high-mindedness you get from these uh, tech oligarchs. At the end of the day, we want to the American people, the, the, the who live in the world's most powerful mm-hmm. democracy, to hear from their leaders or their would-be leaders. Oh, really? Um, I mean, except when we say you're not allowed to hear from your leader when he's actually your leader. Right. Because, of course, he was banned when he was still president. Exactly. So at the end of the day, blah, 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 blah. It is very much like Charlie Brown's mom listening to these people. But um, Brett Baer uh, uh, pushed Clegg a bit, which was definitely in order, reminding uh, Nick Clegg and all of us, what Trump posted on Facebook on January 6th, that fateful day. That got him kicked off? Well, he was subsequently kicked off, but this is what he posted on January 6th. So, uh, Nick, um, could you 
explain to us what what the community standards are exactly in terms of who stays and who goes, what where those guardrails are exactly located, and who has to stay within them and who does not? But on Facebook, he posted on that day, I'm asking everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful, no violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order, respect the law, and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. He posted, we have to have peace, go home. Uh, I guess I look at, you look at other people who may maybe still didn't get suspended on, on Facebook or Instagram who have done or said other things. Uh, and I'm just trying to get a sense of where the community standards are for political speech uh, and what you took from that day on that decision. Yeah, I mean, like you, I don't think it, it helps to go through each and every single post that, that, that appeared that day. Um, uh, there are other posts where, which, which had a, a much more, uh, at best, ambivalent uh, message of support for, for those who uh, did, you know, indulge in, in, in exceptional violence at the centre of American democracy on that, on that day. But, but where we draw the line is, it, as a general principle, we're a private company, we're a private tech company, we're not a political entity, we don't, we don't try and make decisions which sort of, you know, help or hinder one side or the other. Oh, really? We believe in free and open debate, particularly in the world's most powerful democracy, the United, United States. We're trying to strike the right balance between free expression, free and open political debate, whilst at the same time making sure that for all the users who use uh, Facebook and Instagram, it's, it's an enjoyable experience. So, in other words, it's arbitrary and capricious based on politics, if I could translate what you right. just said. Because he asked what the community standards are, and you give him, again, the, the lofty ideals. Our general principle is a belief in free and open debate, oh, except please. when we don't like one of the participants. Even when – and it was it was great of uh, Bear to remind people what he posted on Facebook that day. I know he didn't post it fast enough, according to some, but – he posted it nonetheless, and it was completely a message of peace and law and order, literally. And uh, and so why he go and others stay, Nick? And, oh, well, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Okay. Why not? What exactly? Don't tell me what you're sort of striking all this amorphous talk about striking the right balance and so on and so forth. What was the standard he violated on that day? Uh, or in general, that uh, resulted in a two-year suspension. And do, have you looked to see if your team and your systems are applying that standard even-handedly based on content, not based on the content, the person providing the content? Was he want, asked that question? He was not. Ugh. He was not. But but you, you know what kind of answer you would get, sort of the kind of answer you just heard. Right. And they said if he, it. if he, you know, he, he can get suspended, you know, once they let him back on, if he does something that they don't like or deem, you know, efficient, they can suspend him again for two more years right well, away for breaking platform rules. Well, of course. Don't go back to him. Don't give them that. They need of him. Of course. Uh, Molly Hemingway, uh, she chimed in on this after hearing uh, what Nick Clegg had to say. Um, she was not ready to offer plaudits to Meta and Nick Clegg. Facebook, in general, has done so much to attack freedom of speech, freedom of expression, the freedom of mm -hmm. free people to debate. They didn't do it just with Trump. They did it with all sorts of uh, effective voices, all That's sorts true. of important debates about COVID. Yep. And so now, finally, two years later, after meddling in me election after election, now they're finally saying, oh, well, he can come back now. This isn't even 
coming close to making right what they did to this country and what they continue to do. I mean, think of all the doctors who signed the Great Barrier Declaration that were silenced on Facebook, not just Twitter. People who talked about the efficiency of masks. They didn't want any conversation about it. If you questioned the vaccines, you were kicked off. Free and open debate. Uh-huh. They're, they're, they're all for free and open debate. People should hear from their leaders. I assume that he would, Nick Clegg would say, of course people should hear from medical experts on a topic that involves science and medicine. But that's uh, not exactly yeah. how it played out during COVID uh, and till to this day, is it? I just would he, not go back if I was Trump. Knew we. He, would, he was asked uh, also, Clegg was, about uh, the handling of things like you just raised, discussions of various COVID-related topics, as well as the handling of the Hunter Biden story. Oh. Here's what uh, he said about Facebook to distinguish it from Twitter. Biden's story, what, I mean, other platforms, I think it was Twitter, sort of just deleted the story altogether. We didn't. You could still find the story. Millions of people did. But for seven days, the prominence of the story was was less uh, for those seven days. It's just part of the way our systems work to allow our fact checkers. We have a, a network of independent fact checkers um, to, 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 to look at to look at the story if they wanted to. They didn't. And after seven days, that what's called in the jargon, that temporary demotion was taken off. So we, we didn't remove it. People could find it. Many people saw it on Facebook. We were simply following the rules by which our systems currently operate. Right. We just had to demote it uh, through the election. Yeah. And then uh, after our independent fact checkers had plenty of time to review it, a New York Post story, lest we forget, uh, then our independent fact checkers uh, said that New York Times story met their lofty journalistic standards. And then we uh, undemoted it. Uh, Okay. Right. Sure. Uh, We also know, and he danced around this issue, too, but we know from Mark Zuckerberg himself on the Joe Rogan show that uh, they're in conversations with the federal government, the FBI. They they get get, uh, outreach from these the alphabet soup of agencies, just like Twitter does. Clegg suggests that uh, they are. Not not so responsive to the federal government. They're not being dictated to by the federal government. I'd love to see the Facebook files, uh, something uh, commensurate with the Twitter files. They're so committed to free and open debate and they're so independent minded in their decision making based on their lofty standards. Then um, why don't uh, you, Mark and Nick and the whole team, why don't you disclose some of those conversations you've had with federal officials the way that I mean, Elon Musk has. It was so bad at Twitter that I read those files, the last dump, and they called members of the government, they called them their co-workers. That's how often they would work with them about oh. suppressing information about COVID and other matters. So how about that? So, yeah, Mark, how about a little bit? Forward? I want to see this. Brett didn't make that jump, but how about that? Did disclose, you know, in the interest of transparency and free and open debate and whether this is appropriate and whether you're to be trusted and so on and so forth. You know, consistent with those lofty ideals you regaled us, with which you regaled us, right? Right, Nick? Something else, too. I mean, the the statement he made about, you know, essentially, you know, we're not here to put the finger, to put our finger on the scale for a particular viewpoint or a particular party. Right. I'm sorry, how, how much did Mark Zuckerberg, through his, uh, you know, dubious uh, uh, C4s, spend on Zucker boxes and 
other election tinkering, putting staffers in uh, election offices in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and so forth? Oh, right. You, you guys, yeah. can, can we you look no at your agenda. can we look at the contribution data of Facebook employees, including all those independent fact checkers that you have and tell us again that there's there's no particular angle you're taking when it comes to elections or politics in general. Right. OK, Nick. Tom, dear Park, you're in Chicago's morning answer. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Thank you for taking my call. I, for one, am gratified that, that President Trump is going to be back on the platform and all of them. Um, one thing I know is human nature, and there'll be a time sometime in the future, not all, but many will say, oh, I didn't know that Donald Trump was a deranged, racist, psychopath. I, I didn't know. And all the entities that service those people, be it Molly at the Federalist, Fox, you guys, you'll have no excuses. It was out there. It was sunlight. And you people have no excuses for this stuff. He posts 10 times a day on his the one he's got now. You guys would not let him coach your kids at baseball, let alone have him be in charge of anything. So that's my take. It hasn't changed. And thanks for letting me air it out on your show. That's what we do, Tom, because we want uh, you to be able to speak publicly and on this platform for all to hear your views on things, too, and let uh, people make their own determinations on the um, – substance and insight provided see that's how it works simple but those independent fact trackers at social media those social media companies they make it so much more complicated don't they no agenda though dan and amy chicago's morning answer you've made the switch and it feels so good you switch to chicago's morning answer on am 560 the answer Dan and Amy, I appreciate uh, anyone who is dedicated to their job. And uh, we have an Uber Eats driver that uh, will go the extra mile. I mean, he will get you your food no matter where you are. And I thought, you know, hearing about it, I thought it was a joke. But this actually happened. This is real. An Uber Eats guy delivers a meal and a drink, too. And you could see the Uber Eats sticker on the McDonald's bag to somebody who's sitting, you know, courtside and stops the game. Loyola would take over 10 minutes before we get a stoppage. And we got an official's timeout. And somebody came on the floor yeah. on the far side. They're so good. For an Uber Eats delivery or something there is carrying some McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Oh, this has to be one of the all-time uh, I'm actually not kidding. No, I, no, I this think, is the I truth. I think that's what's happening. This guy's in the corner. looked like he – was he going to deliver the, mm-hmm. the McDonald's to somebody on the court? Through Valentine got hungry. Can we rule that out? He's a- <laughs> I mean – I think that's an Uber Eats sticker. Is that what that is? I'm trying to get confirmation. Uber yeah. Eats, yes. Yeah. Maybe I'll put they my hand up. Him. I'm getting a little hungry. You can bring it over here. So we saw the stoppage. The, the man was usher. Let's see if we can see this. No, this is going to be the turnover. In the there court. he is. There, right there, 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 there he is. In the okay. is yeah. Yeah. This guy is actually, who's he delivering it to? The ref. The, 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 the ref said later. Give it to me later. Not I mean, now. Philip Alston's done a lot. I didn't think he needed a Big Mac for sustenance in the middle of the game. I, I know, but I'm uh, well. The official out there, Tim, he he distanced him like I didn't say now. Later. That's got to be unbelievable. That's got to be something that the highlight shows are going to have a blast with. Yeah. I mean, the referee had to push him off the court. Like, what? Do you, who is this? Get back. Well. Uh, you can understand why, uh, since it was Loyola against Duquesne, why he didn't notice there was a basketball game going on. <laughs> hey, uh, Boy, talk about 
talk about Porter Mosier getting out just in time, Mike. Holy cow. Oh. But the interesting thing is after he delivered the quarter pound of the cheese, he had a triple-double for the Ramblers. We- <laughs> Thank you very much. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, those uh, undercover operators at Project Veritas have uh, have done it again. Oh, good. What this time? I'm so Undercover excited. reporter uh, for Project Veritas was able to uh, get Pfizer's Jordan Tristan Walker talking. Jordan Tristan Walker is the director of research and development Strategic Operations, and mRNA Scientific Planning. Oh, boy. Director of R&D, Strategic Operations, and mRNA Scientific Planning. And they had a little conversation about Pfizer and Pfizer's COVID vaccines. And uh, what's the state of play? What's Pfizer doing to optimize the vaccines, you know, from their perspective as a business? What is Pfizer doing, I guess, to optimize, you know, the vaccines now? Oh, we actually have a meeting about that today, so there's a lot. Really? They're doing, uh, I don't know if I should say this. <laughs> we're exploring, like, now, you know how the virus keeps mutating? Yeah. Well, one of the things we're exploring is, like, why don't we just mutate it ourselves so we can actively develop new vaccines, right? So we have to do that. If we're going to do that, though, there's a risk of, like, as you could imagine, no one wants to be having a... Uh, pharma company mutating fucking viruses. Yeah. So okay. we're like, do we want to do this? So that's like one of the things we're considering. Okay. So like the future, like maybe we can like create new versions of the vaccines and things like that. Okay. So Pfizer ultimately is thinking about mutating COVID. Well, that is not what we say to the public. No. That's why it was, like, <laughs> it was a thought that came up in a meeting, and we were like, why? Why do we not? It was like we're going to consider that with more discussions. Okay. That exact reaction. What do you think? Uh, we don't need the, the to uh, the NIH to fund the Wuhan Virology Lab. We can just put it at Pfizer here. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Let's mutate the virus and then create the vaccines for the mutations we create. And then we'll have this endless cycle of mutations and vaccines. Because it's a moneymaker. Yeah, they got to keep it going. So how would that, oh, that work? That is sickening. Yeah, how, how would it work? Well, about how it worked at the Wuhan Virology Lab, perhaps. But here's the explanation from Mr. Tristan Walker, Director of R&D for Strategic Operations and mRNA Scientific Planning at Pfizer. So the way that we're thinking about it, don't tell anyone this story. You got to publish your own You got to publish your own story. Okay, right. So um, the way it would work is like we put them in the virus in these monkeys. Okay. And then we successively like cause them to keep infecting each other. And we collect serial samples from them. And then the ones that are more infectious, like the virus, we'll put them in another monkey and just constantly actively mutate it. That's one way. Okay. Or you can even do like directed like simulation, which like we should not prefer. And then 
you just sample what the different like um, like uh, proteins on the surface of the virus look like over time. Okay. So then you can see the mutation, and you can kind of force it to mutate in a certain way you want. Okay. But you have to be like very controlled to make sure that this virus that you mutate doesn't create something that, like you know goes everywhere. Something Which crazy. Is the way that the virus started and moving on. To be honest, like it's, it makes no sense if this virus popped out of nowhere. Like. Yeah, I know. Uh, here's what I don't want to hear from uh, a senior official at a drug company. Please don't tell anybody this. Yeah, it's always a little secret. <laughs> That's a phrase, particularly when it comes to infectious disease. That's something I don't want to hear. Please don't share this with anybody. Okay. By the way, did you catch that at the end? Tony Fauci, are you listening? Tony, is this thing on? I know Tony Fauci is a regular listener. I hope he caught that. The virus didn't just come out of nowhere, says this guy at Pfizer. He basically said it came out of the lab. Right. I mean, I know that's not going to be a surprising revelation to many who've already come to that conclusion. And there's a lot of reason to come to that conclusion, even though we don't officially know. But it's interesting to hear uh, Pfizer, uh, you know, specialist in the mRNA scientific planning. Wow. Offer his conclusion. Okay, so... Um, He's in the thick of it. He knows. So uh, when are we going to be uh, jacking up those monkeys with uh, COVID mutations? So, I mean, when is Pfizer going to implement the mutation of all these viruses? I don't know. It depends on how the experiments work out. Because this is just like something we're buying, right? It sounds like gain of function to me. I don't know. It's a little bit different. I think it's different. It's like this... It's definitely not gain of function. It sounds like it is. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Directed evolution is very different. <laughs> Direct evolution? Directed evolution. Directed evolution. Okay. <laughs> well, so, I mean... Oh, my God. Is that what it is? <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I don't know. Well, you're not supposed to do gain of function research with the viruses. Like, yeah. They recommend not. But you do, like, these, like, selected threshold mutations to try to see if you make more potent. Yeah. So there, there is research I'm learning about that. I don't know how that's going to work. There better not be any more outbreaks. Just like Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> better not be around. Um, yeah, so, so that's the, the way you get around the gain of function issue is you call it directed evolution. This is, we're doing uh, directed evolution here, not gain of function research. I can't wait till Rand Paul gets his hands on this guy. Oh, oh and by God, the way, bring, uh, bring Tony Fauci back out of retirement, too, for some commentary on this. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us all morning long on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. So um, what is the goal of the directed evolution? Don't call it gain of function. <laughs> I know, it's such a creepy laugh he had. He was enjoying this so much, being like the puppet master. Well, I don't know. I think he was just enjoying something. He took him out to dinner. Um <laughs> Part, the goal of the directed evolution. Yes. Well, for Pfizer of doing that. So probably what they want to do is like to try to figure out, to some extent, try to figure out like, you know, there's all these new strains of variants that just pop up. Why don't we try to like catch them before they pop up in nature and we can develop a vaccine prophylactic for like new variants. Yeah. So that's why they're thinking like if you do it control in the lab, then you say, oh, this is a new epitope. And so then if it comes out later on, like in the public, you already have a vaccine kind of working on it. Oh my God. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that the, like the best business model though? Like, just control 
nature before nature even happens itself, right? Yeah, yeah. If it works. <laughs> what do you mean if it works? Because like some of the times like we're just mutations that pop up, right? And we're not prepared for it, like with Delta or Omicron, right? And things like that. So. Who knows? I mean, either way, it's gonna be a cash cow. COVID will probably be a cash cow for us for a while going forward. Like, yeah, I obviously like. <laughs> well, I think the whole, you know, I think the whole like research of the viruses and mutating it like would be the ultimate like cash cow. Yeah, it'd be perfect. Yeah, perfect. Uh huh. And uh, ultimate bef- cash cow. In case you think, well, wait a second, Dan. We still have regulators. We've got the FDA. We've got uh, the luminaries at the CDC. So there are uh, there is oversight of big pharma companies like Pfizer. They're not just going to green light this. They couldn't, right? For all government officials. Wow. Yeah, for any industry, though. So, like, and the pharma industry, all the government uh, officials who, like, you know, review our drugs, especially yeah. they come work for pharma companies. Like, the military, like, all the, like, army and defense, like, government officials eventually go work for the defense company afterwards. Yeah. How do you feel about that revolving door? Like, it's pretty good for the industry, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad for everyone else in America. Why is it bad for everybody else? Because if the regulators who have to approve our drugs know that once they stop being regulated, they want to come work for the company. Attention, Dr. Scott Gottlieb uh, calling Dr. Scott Gottlieb agency capture, which is like a fundamental tenet of public choice uh, theory and economics. And we've mentioned many times, many examples. uh, This is one of the more dangerous ones, given the given what we're talking about uh, diseases and drugs. But agency capture, right? You go into the FDA or CDC with an eye, if you're not going to be a careerist like Tony Fauci, with an eye to going to work for the drug companies. Yeah, make and money. So, and so you're going to be uh, amenable to the desires of the drug companies because you have an eye towards being over there at some point in perhaps the not-too-distant future. That's where the opportunity is to cash out, exactly. Got a butter. <laughs> so creepy. <laughs> These people should be arrested. Ugh. James O'Keefe uh, went to Dr. Robert Malone for comment on oh, what good. you just heard. Mm-hmm. And here's what Dr. Robert Malone had to say about it. You know, COVID renegade, Dr. Robert Malone. You're creating a new function in virus one by adding elements from virus two, infecting one monkey and then another monkey. That's called serial passage. That appears to have been one of the technologies deployed in the Wuhan Institute of Virology with the humanized mouse strains that I believe were obtained from uh, EcoHealth Alliance. That's an example of directed evolution. The gentleman seems to have absolutely no moral compass at all about what he's doing. The hubris and arrogance and immaturity. If this is the quality of individuals within Pfizer that are making these huge decisions that uh, risk global public health with such a casual disregard for the human toll, it's profoundly corrupt in terms of would it be feasible for Pfizer to circumvent international or national law? I think that is undeniable. 
Ready for your next booster? On uh, a related story. You see the GAO report? GAO report on the fraud and the $878 billion in unemployment insurance handouts from April of 20 to September of 2022. Almost a trillion dollars in those checks. Labor estimates uh, the uh, fraud uh, hit $8.5 billion from July of 20 to June of 2021. Jeez. Just that year. Eight and a half billion. Talk about uh, uh, an accounting, uh, an accounting for the aid that we're giving Ukraine. Sure, an accounting for that, an accounting for this. Do you ever get an accurate accounting of any government spending? The lower bound of the fraud rate, seven and a half percent across three additional unemployment programs Congress created. It estimates taxpayers overall underwrote some sixty billion dollars in fraudulent payments. The Department of Inspector General estimated at $45 billion in fraud previously. $60 billion. Figure, you know, normal uh, government estimating, forecasting, off by a factor of 10, perhaps. It's about normal. Yeah. Maybe call you $60 billion, $600 billion. What's a few hundred billion yeah, or trillion knows. between friends? <laughs> Golly, I hope it doesn't happen. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Here's where Mr. 10%, the big guy, President Biden, was last March when it came to aid for Ukraine. The idea, the idea that we're going to send in offensive equipment and have planes and tanks and trains uh, going in with American pilots and American crews, just understand, and uh, don't kid yourself, no matter what you all say, that's called World War III. Okay. Oh, World War Three. Okay, we got it. And here's where President Biden was yesterday on the same topic. Today, I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. The Abrams tanks are the most capable tanks in the world. They're also extremely complex to operate and maintain. So we're also giving Ukraine the parts and equipment necessary to effectively sustain these tanks on the battlefield. And we begin, we'll begin to train the Ukrainian troops on these issues of sustainment, logistics, and maintenance as soon as possible. So does that mean World War Three per March of 2022, Biden? To help us with that, we're pleased to be joined by Congresswoman Mary Miller. She's from Illinois' 15th Congressional District. She represents Illinois 15 in Southern Illinois. And she's again serving on the House Education and Workforce Committee. And she's also be part of the Biden documents investigation. Uh, uh, I'm sure she'll play a outspoken role in that as well. 
Uh, Mary Miller, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. What uh, What about uh, the announcement yesterday that now we're moving into tanks and effectively military advisors because someone has to train the Ukrainians how to use those Abrams tanks? Well, they're deflecting from the issue that matters to Americans, which is secure our own border. MS-13 has taken control of the border. We've got drug cartels, traffic fentanyl at just the just a shocking amount of fentanyl flowing into our country and our young people are dying. This is a chemical terrorist attack uh, being foisted on us. The American people want that border secure. Right. But okay. I can see that point, but where is the, where is, where are you and where is the house Republican caucus going to be on this escalation in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. Well, I oppose sending them more money without auditing (laughs) <laughs> the the money that's already gone over there, and we need to secure our own border. Uh, John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, said uh, no corruption uh, he's seen with respect to the aid that's been provided to Ukraine for the United States uh, thus far, even though on Tuesday Zelensky sacked a bunch of senior-level officials uh, who were under a cloud of corruption, accused of embezzlement and other such um, other such malfeasance. Absolutely. This yeah. is why I have not been supporting sending more money over there, especially without an audit. And the other question I have is, where is Europe? Germany and France should be paying like we're paying. Yeah, and uh, we just can't continue. <laughs> this is the America last agenda that President Trump delivered us from. And we want to go back to the America first agenda. Secure border. We need to rein in our own spending. So you think we should take care of America first before we go help Ukraine? Absolutely. The greatest threat to the world is if our country goes down. And, you know, we can't continue the kind of irresponsible spending that we've seen with under Joe Biden and um, just the criminal activities, the um, duplicity of, um, you know, justice to, you know, Two systems of justice being foisted on the American people. Fentanyl. Let's talk about how many young people have died of fentanyl in our country. I mean, I feel for the people in Ukraine, but the responsibility of our government is to protect its own people. Uh, Speaking of uh, drug use, uh, talk about Hunter Biden and Biden, Inc. Uh, The document search. uh, So as I understand it, uh, the classified documents improperly in Biden's possession uh, absolves Trump of prosecution. And now the the classified documents in Pence's possession absolves Biden of prosecution. So uh, who do we need to go to next to see if they have classified documents to absolve Pence? Are we, this this uh, classified document situation. What's your reaction to uh, classified documents being found in so many places where they ostensibly don't belong? Well, first of all, Biden lied. The White House lied. Uh, It's obvious that we have a political FBI. President Trump was unfairly treated in the raid of his home. And we need to have hearings. I'm very happy that my good friend uh, Jim Jordan will be leading the Judiciary Committee as chairman. And then also um, Congressman James Comer is going to be head of oversight and they're going to have hearings and it's so necessary 
that we unfold what the truth is here. But what about the raid itself, though? I mean, we learned yesterday that the DOJ did not raid President Biden's home because they got consent and they came to an agreement on how they would search the home and where they would search the home. But yet they didn't do that for President Trump. Well, exactly. And the beach house hasn't been searched. Yeah, that's the the, the yeah, Jen Psaki, uh, uh, surprisingly, had a good question. Why haven't the other Biden residences, and don't just limit it to the beach house, also these uh, material uh, players like Hunter and, and his brother, why, why haven't their homes been searched? Well, that, and they're trying to say there's no visitor logs. Nobody believes that. There are visitor logs, and we want to see them. But they lie, and they're corrupt. We have to have hearings, and we've got to... Um, go back to the America First agenda. I mean, between the border being open, fentanyl flowing in, the impact it's having on our young people, and then this outrageous spending that we've seen in the last two years, this has got to be stopped. Okay, so on the spending piece, uh, we talked to Steve Moore yesterday. I mean, he made sort of a good point of the debt ceiling and all this hewing and crying about uh, the debt ceiling and uh, America can't default and it would be... uh, uh, economic uh, calamity and so on and so forth. Um, well, Steve Morris said, well, wait a second. If you hit the debt ceiling and you can't borrow anymore, that means you can only spend what you take in. That wouldn't be a bad position for Congress to be in. Exactly. We've got to stop this reckless spending. $31 trillion has to be serviced. I heard someone saying, you know, the interest rates are going up. To service $31 trillion could cost up to $100 trillion in the next 10 years. And, and then... Just to highlight how outrageous they're spending is, they gave us $1.7 trillion omnibus, 4,000-page bill on Christmas Eve, packed full of their pet projects for the left. It's not uh, infrastructure, uh, locks and dams, things that the American people care about, um, you know, repairing our electric grids, which are third world and crumbling, and they want to just keep... Um, over overburdening our electric grids with their stupid green bad deal agenda. You were one of the uh, holdouts on Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker for a time. Uh, I wonder how everyone is getting along now yes. that he's speaker. Is his uh, collegiality returned? Are people uh, working together and all that? Absolutely, we're um, united to fight Biden's agenda. We needed that fight or hold out, whatever you have to say, because our country's hanging in the balance. We're bankrupt. We're being invaded. We've got a weaponized government. We're being censored. Our school children are being propagandized. And, you know, you know, in Chicago, our safety and security are at risk. Criminals are running the show right now. Criminals and liars, such as Biden and the White House. Well, Congresswoman Uh, Mary Miller, what was it that changed your mind? Because you held out for a while there, and then you and a bunch of others, um, except those six holdouts. What was it that changed your mind? Yes. Right. Well, I was never, I wasn't a never McCarthy. I was in that fight all because of the rules package. We have to deal with spending. And that was my priority was um, ensuring that we we're going to get spending cuts going forward. Um, you were talking about uh, personal safety and uh, down uh, where uh, you live and the district you represent, Uh, In southern Illinois, uh, people are uh, very protective of their individual right to protect themselves that can be found in the Second Amendment. Uh, Up here in Chicago, much less so. Um, So uh, per this uh, 
this ban that uh, Pritzker and the Democrat Socialists in Springfield pass on some rifles <laughs> that look scary to them. Uh, there's litigation on it now. Um, are, are you, um, your husband is a state legislator, obviously he is getting involved in the fight to uh, have this law deemed unconstitutional? Uh, absolutely, it's unconstitutional. I want to tell you that I'm very proud to be a member of the Second Amendment Caucus. Here, I will always stand up for our Second Amendment rights. Governor Pritzker's ban is a blatant violation of our Second Amendment rights. And then Joe Biden just directed the ATF to ban guns using that pistol brace regulation that's also unconstitutional. Number, they're after our Second Amendment rights at the same time as they are releasing criminals which you know this, and then defunding and demoralizing our police. Yeah, they want to take it to the federal level, too. I mean, Gavin Newsom was out there because they've had two mass shootings in three days, um, was not with, with a assault rifle, but they want to ba- take it to a national level. Do you think it'll come to that? Oh, I think it'll never stop. I tell people all the time, if they could, they would. That's why it's so important to elect fighters, people that will you know, fight for the American people, fight for our constitutional rights, and not be passing bills, sending bills like that outrageous omni that came through on Christmas Eve. 19 Republican senators voted for that. 4,000 yeah. pages. Yeah. American people should be boiling over this kind of leadership in our country. Yeah, and, and some lame duck uh, and some lame duck House Republicans voted for it, like Adam Kinzinger too. Uh, Good that he's gone. Mary Miller, Congresswoman from Illinois 15th in Southern Illinois. Mary, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Stay safe up there. Uh We'll try. Thank you so much. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. I haven't been uh, this disappointed since Merle's Rib Palace in Evanston closed. What happened? Oh, everything's closing. Every One day my- you hear more family-owned businesses. 75 years in the business going out. Well, this is another one of those. Uh, this um, was around for uh, almost 50 years, I think. Not the choo-choo so, and 1977. Uh, Café Lacave. Oh, I know. Café Lacave was, was like a, a staple for me when I lived in Rosemont in particular. Uh, John Squillo Cafe. That that place that was so good. Food was so good. That cave. Oh, I love the cave. Uh, is such oh. a, was such a cool, unique place to eat. Um, the steak a poivre was to die for. The steak a poivre. Yeah, that was my favorite. Have you ever been to a wedding there? No. Oh, I went to my. I went. Well, whenever we'd have a special dance, like prom or homecoming. I don't like weddings. Okay, but whenever I don't you like to... proms, I don't like homecomings. Well, we would go there after prom, after homecoming. I love the shrimp cocktail. I just remember thinking that was such a treat. But my yeah, friend I... Kim Carnatz got married there to her friend, her friend, her husband Jordan, and I had to let them know. I said, "Oh, they're closing after forty-six years in business." But they said the time has come. I mean, they explained yesterday to Channel Seven. They said we have missed every family event because we are here for the holidays. We are here for you, and now it's time for us to be with our children and our grandchildren. But then you think, is that really the real answer? Yeah. They close March 11th, and they're almost completely booked from now until then. What if their children and grandchildren don't want to spend more time with them? <laughs> I knew Do they ever think of that? It's always so, it's always so one-sided. Well, why these, don't they uh, just sell it? Well, yeah, because they, because then somebody could pollute the brand. You know, you never know what could happen. 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But again, apparently the upcoming the, the generation behind them doesn't want to to uh, continue it. Um, that's uh, it's always sad, and especially with an institution like Cafe Le Cave. The uh, it's interesting too. That was the nice thing about the cave because when there was riffraff in, like you and your friends, um, you you go to the dining room, and then the sophisticates like yes. me and my friends could be in the cave, separated right. from. You know, the, the element, if you will. Well, I remember being 21 and being able to go into the cave for the first time. I held my head up high. I'm like, I have a rot. Yeah. I don't know what I want to drink because I don't really like anything at that age. But okay. But it was fun. It was a, you know. That's I, what I I'm just... talking. That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> you ruin the uh, whole, the whole gestalt of the place. These revelers. Because uh, they're going to go see REM across the street to the Rosemont Horizon right. after they have dinner or a drink well somebody's got to take over that space i mean it's a it's got to be a gold mine i mean really you get tens of thousands of people at a concert and then they go over there afterwards or before yeah so i don't know that's that's part of the problem though that's the, the location it's a great location but but then you've got the depends on the show of course at the what what do they call this now the all-state arena i believe i don't think yes, it's the it's horizon anymore no it's all this just arena. in the rosemont horizon is now the all-state so arena just, how old are you you just called it the rosemont arena. Ah, i'm talking about i'm going back to my you know misspent youth at cafe la Cava. actually that was well-spent youth and the bar area too inside in the cave that ca- that 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 ah oh, you can't so, replicate so disappointing. the cave yeah why don't you take it over and you could call it the dan proft man cave um I don't then think that sounds particularly appetizing <laughs> or sophisticated because it would be neither. But, I mean, Merle's Rib Palace in Evanston, these, like, unique independent restaurants, right? Um, they, they, sold their, they, they sold it or the, the, uh, the property owners it's like became a health club in Evanston. Oh. Uh, the, you know, look, there's nothing Northwestern students and most Evanston residents can do, okay? The health club is not going to help. Merle's Rib Palace was more center cut. You know and Lori's, I, mean? I loved Lori's Rib House on off of Michigan Avenue. There, Lori's is gone, and yeah, it's all gone. Cartier's gone, Banana Republic's gone, The Gap's gone, Macy's is gone. And then if you drive down State Street, you would just be depressed. It is yeah. coming. It's all leaving Chicago. All right. Uh, thanks for indulging our old people talk about the way yeah. things used to be and what used to be there and what is no longer. But Cafe La Cave is going to be missed. I know by many. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Go, take the money and run. Good, good, Billy Mac is a detective down in Texas. Hey, we got a text message from one of our listeners yeah. talking about Cafe La Cave. And uh, I was at the same wedding as them. I mentioned I was at Kim Carnett's wedding. And they had this beautiful three-tiered wedding cake, you know, sitting in the middle of the ballroom. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, the table started collapsing, and the cake <laughs> fell down right on the floor. Spectacular. Okay, thanks for stepping. But I'm on just the, saying, uh, one of our mu- musical intro to the topic. Okay, but okay, great, wonderful. <laughs> I'm just saying. Who cares? A lot of our listeners were at that wedding too, saying that's one of their memories from Cafe La Cave. Yeah. And how the how the marriage worked out? They're still together, and they have four beautiful children. Oh. Huh. Huh. Uh, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, You're take welcome. the money and run now to the actual Ooh, topic. No. All right, turn up the music again. Start over. Uh, I know the um, that um, state senator uh, Bob Martwick. Um, it's he's easy to pick out. He's the one who looks like thirty pounds of horse manure stuffed into oh. a ten-pound bag. Oh, that's him. That guy. Yeah, yeah. So if you see somebody like that with like uh, legislative plates, you'll know that it's 
Bob Martwick, uh, Northwest Side. Uh, yeah, all those Northwest Side wars with yeah, with all those cops and firefighters, first responders that elect a colossal douchebag like uh, Bob Martwick, who I almost, yeah. almost got in a physical fight with after we taped uh, Mike Flannery's program on Fox Chicago oh, a couple years right. back. Do we have that? I, well, it, not not on the air. I didn't get it. I mean, although I did. I think I did call him. What did I call him on the air? I think I did call him a douchebag on the air. I think hmm. he did. Anyway, um, he is a douchebag. That's why I said well, so. You would have yeah. won the fight had you gotten into one. I invited him to step outside. He declined. Um, so uh, Martwick is uh, resuscitating that graduated state income tax idea yeah. that uh, the Democrat socialists have been kicking around that's so popular. Well, even know, Pritzker said he doesn't want to rehash that again. Well, I know, because he's focused on running for president. Exactly. And he'll have to spend another $50 million on a ballot initiative and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean that uh, you can't raise the issue. And Bob Markwick, Bob, uh, Bobby Martwick is, and I'm excited about it. I think it's great. And I think Illinois should go with a millionaire surcharge. I think we should adopt... Brandon Johnson's proposal of a three and a half percent city income tax for people who make more than a hundred grand. We were talking about with Ted Dabrowski earlier in the week. I like it all. I like it all because, of course, uh, people are saying uh, Illinois doesn't have enough money. Uh, we're taxed too low. The business climate is uh, too friendly. You know, too much. The the balance is too much on the side of entrepreneurs and business owners. So let's deal with it. And um, I'm sure it'll go for a good cause. I don't know what the cause is. Don't care. I know it'll be a good cause because these are the people to whom uh, we've entrusted our future in Illinois. So let's do it, right? I mean, there's no opposition to that. And then you can finance the uh, public sector pensions. So all of those public sector employees, state employees in Illinois can take the money and run. What do you think? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line maximum punishment that is my theme for Chicago and Illinois maximum punishment graduated state income tax yes city uh, income tax for incomes over a hundred grand yes property tax increase yes every tax under the sun every regulation under the sun ban this and mandate that I love it all right. Why do you want to watch us suffer more than we already are suffering, Dan? How is this suffering? This is what the majority says they want. I know they rejected the uh, graduated state income tax uh, last go around, but that was, you know, those were precarious times with COVID and stuff. You know, I think I think a redo is in order. Those two billionaires were fighting, Ken Griffin and Pritzker. Yeah, well, so what? I think a, I think a redo is in order. And by the way, in terms of taking the money to run, I don't know that we have updated numbers. So these numbers are a little bit old, but they're still relevant. Um, 71,000 people collecting public pensions from the six statewide retirement plans have moved out of Illinois, taking more than $2.4 billion annually with them. That's about one in five Illinois state employee pensioners. About one in five are out of here. Mainly, well, uh, uh, the, the preponderantly, I guess is a better word, Florida. Well, imagine that. You leave Illinois for Florida. Why would you do that? Illinois doesn't tax retirement income. Why'd no. anybody want to leave? Why not enjoy your retirement there? In California, they do. My 
former teachers uh, live there, and they have to pay 9000 a year, he and his wife. So 18000 total to live in California. They tax your retirement there. Well, most states do. Illinois is one of only three states, I think, that doesn't tax retirement income. But that's what I'm saying. Well, Florida would be another one, they, since right. they have no state income tax. But um, what? what? Why, 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 where's everybody going? Actually, Wisconsin, the third most popular destination for Illinois public pensioners, um, you know, probably because it's close to home, but still a slightly lower tax burden. And at least Republicans there have the will to fight under a Democrat governor to try to lower the state's income tax there. We don't have that sort of willpower here. This is unusual because, according to a National League of Cities report, uh, about 90% of retired public employees stay in the area where they worked. Uh, but here, twice that number are leaving. Why? What? Where's everybody going? Well, to Florida and Wisconsin and Indiana. Indiana, yeah. yeah. Texas. I, I know. The only reason people move, it's just old people moving to Florida. That's the only thing going on in Illinois. It's not the mass exodus is just right-wing fiction. I got it. I heard uh, Jelly Belly on the topic. We're actually gaining population. Uh, Big companies leave, Cat and Citadel, uh, Boeing and so forth, Tyson. Uh, That's uh, that's just the natural, you know, turnover of businesses. Not a big deal. Chicago is still the crown jewel of the Midwest. It's still a, a bustling, going concern. Yeah, and you're financing, in many cases, these guaranteed seven-figure net present value pensions for people to enjoy them in a state you wish you could live. I like those apples. Three one two six four two five six zero zero Turnkey Pro Answer Line six four six three six. Type in D A then a quick comment. More than fourteen percent of pensioners uh, in IMRF municipal retirement fund. Uh, live out of state. That's about three hundred fifteen million a year. State university system, twenty two percent of all of our wonderful uh, academics in the state university system uh, are living out of state. That's about six hundred million a year. Teachers pension system. Uh, there's uh, about twenty five thousand teachers. Living in other states, that's about 21% of uh, teachers on the on public sector pensions. About uh, 1.2 billion out of state teachers. Wow! Wait, hey, the, I thought you loved it here so much. Yeah, you invested in the children because it's always about the kids. All our heroes are moving away. Jeff and Cal City are on Chicago's Morning Answer. Ah, good morning, Dan and Amy. Dan, I just wanted to say here, here, I am so happy and cheerful. I am so glad that you're finally saying this. Illinois has been gone and lost for a long time. Whatever the Democrats want, uh, tell them you want double. Just just totally agree with that. Just yep. let them have it all. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for the call. What, I mean, uh, right? Elections have consequences, people. This is what you voted for. Oh, you said I didn't. But I opposed the. I did. I opposed the graduated state income tax. I voted tax. against it. Yeah, but when, but not you, but but the people who voted against the graduated state income tax voted to reelect Pritzker, who supports the graduated state income tax because you know he initiated it. So he didn't stop supporting it just because he lost. 
and especially after he won, maybe he won't do it right now because uh, it's not in his short-term political interest to do it. But, I mean, that's the guy who initiated it. So you and you we put him back and super majorities in both chambers and we know what the power structure looks like in Cook County. So yeah, three and a half percent on a hundred thousand dollar salary in Chicago. Hey Brandon Johnson, <laughs> I'll see your three and a half, I'll make it seven. You wanna make it fourteen? Go ahead. I dare you. You don't have the guts. Fourteen, I'll go twenty eight. What do you think? Hey, it's time for these uh, millionaires and millionaires to pay their fair share. That's what's persuasive. Okay, fine. And, uh, you know, uh, some of you uh, enlightened hamlets in the suburbs want to go the same way. Municipal income tax. What do you think? Come on, Naperville, Glen Ellen, Hinsdale, Wilmette, Glencoe, Highland Park. Let's go. Let's get with it. Oh, well, we don't, we don't, we, we, our budgets are balanced. No, they're not. Not really. Not when you look at your unfunded pension liabilities. And so what? Think of all the good that you can do. Every dollar that goes to the government has a positive multiplier. That's what we know from Ralph Martiri out there in River Forest. He's on the school board there. Every single dollar has a positive multi, that the government spends has a positive multiplier. So give the government more money, you get more good stuff. Right? Isn't that the argument? So why so stingy? Let's go. Pony up. Before you saddle up. Karen and Beecher, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Oh, good morning, Dan. I love your righteous indignation. What are you talking about? I you a quadrillion percent. Because in the infamous words of my mother, ultimate punishment is what you get when you are dumb over and over and over and over again. That is what you get. Thanks for the call, Karen. Now, does anybody not understand why I support Lori Lightfoot? I'm just I'm just telling you your argument, not, you know, not you, not Amy, not you, most of our listeners, but I'm just telling you the prevailing arguments that have won the day in Chicago and Illinois. I'm just feeding them back. They're persuasive. So do it. What are you waiting for? Nobody's stopping you. Let's get it on. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. All right, Dan. Dan. Yeah, go ahead with uh, Honeypot Swalwell. Well, I just, you know, Swalwell and Adam Schiff are very upset. Uh, Adam Schiff texted, yes, or tweeted, Kevin McCarthy just kicked me off the House Intelligence Committee, and here's why I fought him and Donald Trump when they tried to tear down our democracy. If he thinks this will stop me, he will soon find out differently. And then Eric Swalwell got up there and uh, spoke with the media. He's uh, And I thought he was kind of threatening Kevin McCarthy. This is purely about political vengeance. The cost is not only removing us from the committee. On the Intelligence Committee, the cost is not only breaking, shattering the most precious glassware in the cabinet, a committee that's always been bipartisan. The cost are the death threats that Ms. Omar, myself, and Mr. Schiff 
keep getting because Mr. Uh, McCarthy uh, continues uh, to aim and project these smears against us. Even though we have said publicly these smears are bringing death threats, he continues to do it, which makes us believe that there's an intent behind it. Oh, please. Yes. But we will not be quiet. We're not not going away. I think he'll regret giving all three of us Uh more time on our Uh. hands. Well, I mean, Adam Schiff was running around the country telling people Trump was a Russian agent, a Russian spy, uh, and Swalwell was doing the we're, same thing. We're, yeah, we're familiar with their antics. We had to endure it for three years, particularly Schiff. But, um, yeah, marked for death. This is the, the last refuge of the scoundrel. I'm getting death threats now. Kevin McCarthy has uh, put a bounty on us. And so it's just, just uh, honestly, just give it a rest. Well, I first, loved, of all, yeah. first of all, these two goofballs. Uh, are not the only two goofballs that the Democrats can put on the House Intel Committee. Bipartisan, it's always been a bipartisan committee. It's still a bipartisan committee with uh, Republican control now that they're in the majority. Right. So nothing has changed. And as McCarthy explained to the D.C. press corps, Beautifully. Uh, the, um, so Schiff is a pathological liar and has been proven to be. And Swalwell got gamed by a Chinese communist asset uh, and there was an FBI briefing that both McCarthy and Pelosi got that McCarthy referenced essentially saying well I can't tell you what was included in the briefing I can tell you that if you got the briefing I got you wouldn't have any question about why Eric Swalwell is unfit to serve on a committee where you have access to classified information in real time in a way that other members of Congress do not. So, yeah. And if okay. Swalwell and Schiff are getting death threats, Devin Nunez says, you brought this upon yourselves, fellas. So, you know, time and time again, there hasn't been a day that's gone by that these guys haven't been out there with a crazy narrative that has weaponized the intelligence agencies across this country. I mean, look, you know, I, I get this all the time. I still get people that will come up to me and you can kind of see because their eyes will go crossways and they'll, they'll start to spit like, like, how, how, how could you? You're, you're just one of Putin's guys. You have something to do with Putin. And I'm like, man, you, you need to take a chill pill. You know, I mean, this happens to me all the time. This is because of Schiff and Swalwell. So the whole idea that you have a guy like Swalwell saying, oh, he, he feels bad because now he's getting death threats. Welcome to the club, my friend. Yeah, you know, exactly. where the hell have you been? I mean, you're exactly. the one that caused this to happen to me and many of my colleagues over yeah, the last many right. years. Yeah, I'll, I'll really I'll cry a river for Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, oh please. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, a postscript on our conversation about those two bedwetters, Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff, uh, from the uh, end of the last hour. You know, Mike Pompeo who we spoke with uh, earlier in the week, he says that he knows that Adam Schiff leaked classified information. Oh. So in this whole conversation about the handling of classified documents by former presidents and vice presidents, um, and, you know, where does this go next? Uh, if that's true, I don't know why Bill Barr didn't investigate it at the time, but that has since passed. 
but I, I would like a House committee to take that up. I'll shove it right down yep. Schiff's skinny little neck. Uh, investigate whether or not that what Pompeo is saying is true and go wherever the facts lead on Schiff. Uh, because, again, the watchword and the expectation for House Republicans, if they want to be in a position to expand their majority in 24, if Senate Republicans want to be in a position to get the majority in 24, and, of course, the White House is you will at least act in furtherance of holding some of these bad actors accountable for what they did. You will dig and dig and dig and go where the facts lead and you will at minimum present them in a public arena. So everybody knows what 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 principal parties did when it came to the Russian collusion hoax, when it came to. Uh, COVID policy and and a range of other issues. Well, so that's the expectation. And Devin Nunez said yesterday on Fox, I mean, we played some of the interview, but he said that Schiff was even caught on tape reaching out to Russians trying to get nude pictures of Trump and spreading this lie for the past two years that he's some Russian spy. But he claims he has it on tape. So we'll see. That would be part of the investigation. All right. To uh, moving on to our uh, next topic. Funny thing happens when you stand up for yourself, particularly when you're in a position to have impact. That's been the story of Governor Ron DeSantis's tenure as governor of Florida, and he's done it again. We uh, told you earlier in the week that DeSantis told the college board uh, that Florida will not be part of their pilot program for their new AP African American Studies course because the... Uh, curriculum is garbage. Here's what he said. Governor, on the AP African American Studies course that was rejected by the state, been a lot of criticism of that move, uh, people saying, you know, this is exactly what we were fearing with the Individual Freedom Bill. I don't know if you or the commissioner could maybe expand a little bit more about sure, what was I mean, in that course. So, um, and as you know, uh, in the state of Florida, our education standards not only don't prevent, but they require teaching black history, all the important things that's part of our core curriculum. This was a separate course on top of that for advanced placement credit. And the issue is we have guidelines and standards in Florida. Uh, we want education, not indoctrination. If you fall on the side of indoctrination, we're going to decline. If it's education, then we will do this course. So when I heard it, we didn't meet the standards. I figured, yeah, they may be doing this It's way more than that. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. And so we're on, that's the wrong side of the line for Florida standards. We believe in teaching kids uh, facts and how to think, but we don't believe they should have an agenda imposed on them. When you try to use black history to shoehorn in queer theory, uh, you are clearly trying to use that uh, for political purposes. And uh, the college board this week agreed to revise their course on African-American studies. Well, 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 despite all the, oh, he's racist, he doesn't want people to learn about uh, the history of black, uh, black people in America and so on and so forth, the typical race-hustling nonsense. And now the college board has uh, 
essentially recanted and they're going to refashion the curriculum for that course. Now, the devil will be in the implementation. You know, they they can polish up the syllabus and then, you know, wink and a nod what happens in the schools. That will require ongoing oversight. But uh, but it, it just shows you. And because this was just being rolled out and it's not in every state yet, the college board was clearly worried about, well, look, if once DeSantis has put a marker down, you're going to see other governors get on board. And now we're going to have a problem. We're going to have a problem in other states where you've got people similarly inclined to Ron DeSantis in the executive office. And uh, this will become, a, you know, we'll put ourselves in in the middle of a, a national a controversy that we don't want to be a part of. So let's just go back to the drawing board and see if we can satisfy Florida. Good for him. Unfortunately, those examples are too few and far between uh, in terms of what's going on in K-12 and certainly, of course, what's going on in the academy. Uh, for more on the latter topic, we're pleased to be joined by Bradley Watson, uh, who formerly of St. Vincent, uh, now at Hillsdale College because of what happened to St. Vincent and at St. Vincent. Bradley Watson teaches in the Van Andel Graduate School of Government at Hillsdale in D.C., and he's the author most recently of Progressivism, The Strange History of a Radical Idea. Professor Watson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Professor Watson, do we have you? Yes, Dan and Amy, delighted to uh, be here. Sorry, we had a bit of a technical glitch. I heard just static when I should have been hearing your beautiful voice, so great oh, to be here. No, no problem. A lot of people hear static when my they hear my voice, too. It's so it's strange. Um, so uh, we were talking a little bit about Ron DeSantis standing up to the college board and now the college uh-huh. board uh, agreeing to revise their uh, curriculum for the AP African-American Studies course. And it's just an example where somebody stands up and is will- and in a position where they can have impact and is willing to throw down over over. Uh, indoctrination as opposed to education and lo and behold um you can make some progress we're just not seeing very much of that these days in k-12 through or certainly on college campuses no this is definitely uh true in my own case um i had uh, directed uh, a center on my college campus which was saint vincent college in latrobe pennsylvania uh, before i moved to hillsdale and i directed this center for many many years it was called the center for political and economic thought and it was dedicated to the study of freedom, Western civilization, and the American experience. And we would invite uh, many heterodox uh, speakers to campus, um, sort of on the conservative, generally speaking, and libertarian uh, side of things. And in the spring of 2022, I organized a major conference, one of the first major conferences we've been allowed to organize uh, post-COVID, on the very topic of politics, policy, and panic, governing in times of crisis. How has uh, America dealt with the kind of, uh, you know, series of moral panics over the previous two years, everything from health care mandates to violence in the in the streets. So I thought this would be a grand topic and we'd get uh, uh, people to speak on this. A couple of the speakers really rubbed people the wrong way. One was Scott Atlas, one of the major national critics of uh, COVID lunacy. And uh, another one who particularly drove the administration crazy was a fellow by the name of Professor David Azarad, who gave a talk um, um, on against affirmative action, basically, and against various uh, sort of formal and informal cultural privileges that he claimed 
uh, were doled out on the basis of race. And he had the audacity to title this talk Black Privilege, uh, Racial Hysteria in Contemporary America, playing on the, of course, the ubiquity of the phrase white privilege. If he just asserted the existence of white privilege, people would have fawned over him and, uh, you know, praised his courage. In any event, the administration went crazy over this talk against uh, affirmative action. They announced the, uh, the, the takeover, the effective uh, uh, destruction of this, uh, of this longstanding uh, Center for Political and Economic Thought. And uh, as you suggested, uh, it was the lack of what I would describe as the lack of courage on the part of uh, anyone, including tenured faculty members, in speaking up against this, which... Um, sort of left me alone, uh, you know, twisting in the wind until it became apparent that uh, this institution, which had been such a wonderful place for so many years, in my view at least, um, you know, wasn't worth trying to save uh, from itself. Uh, people just um, immediately collapsed as soon as these, uh, you know, this, this was a relatively new college president, as soon as these, uh, uh, you know, let's say, people with woke sensibilities on, on, uh, on racial questions took over the campus. There were a number of other uh, smaller instances, too. But uh, the main thing is, I think, with our institutions, higher education institutions, but corporate institutions, media institutions, they're in free fall, and it's because no one will stand up to these people. No one will be... Well, what's your uh, story? What happened well, with you specifically? Yeah, so um, I um, I had objected to a number of, uh, you know, of things that had happened on campus in the... This, this uh, new president had taken over just before the uh, just before the beginning of COVID, and then there was, of course, a period of uh, sort of crazy uh, lockdowns. But as soon as the masks came off, I think he signaled his support for uh, you know this kind of wokeness on campus. Um, I had um, publicly objected to a number of things, including. Uh, you know, faculty calls for the rejection of colorblindness in favor of race consciousness. This had happened before the conference that I just mentioned. Um, the uh, forbidding of, of uh, teaching of, uh, you know, certain uh, certain works where, you know, what was described as racial epithets appear in these works. Well, I, as I said publicly in faculty meetings, this would preclude the teaching of Mark Twain, of uh, Flannery O'Connor, of James Baldwin, of many uh, major works. And I teach all through primary sources, the great books of Western civilization, the great political writings of the American tradition. So I said, you know, I'm going to continue uh, teaching these works, regardless of, uh, you know, words that you find uh, offensive. And uh, then this uh, conference came along, and uh, as soon as the conference had happened, really before the videos of the conference were even publicly available, the administration uh, issued a letter denouncing the speaker, claiming his remarks, and again, these are remarks criticizing affirmative action and various uh, forms of what the speaker characterized as uh, uh, cultural privileges doled out on the basis of race. He was a critic of this, and the, the administration claimed uh, this talk could itself be interpreted as a form of invidious discrimination or systemic bigotry, you know, all the, all the buzz phrases of the academic left now. Uh, they announced the takeover of the um, of the center, major center donors uh, rightly immediately uh, walked away. People who had supported this uh, center dedicated to the study of freedom, Western civilization, and the American experience realized it was going to be under the complete control uh, now of the administration. The uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which is one of the major uh, campus and broader free speech watchdogs in the country, described uh, the administration's policy is, you know, the most egregious example of guest speaker censorship they'd ever seen in over 20 years of uh, operation. So, and uh, then, you know, per personally, of course, I was uh, denounced. I, uh, I fielded 
angry phone calls from uh, college alums, including uh, uh, one which concluded with the exhortation to, quote, let's blow this man up. <laughs> yeah. I immediately, um, you know, raised this with the administration, the same administration who had denounced the speaker and asked if they would uh, denounce such obvious hatred as quickly as they had denounced uh, a guest speaker. There was complete silence from the administration and uh, from my faculty colleagues, for that matter. And these are, you know, grown adults with tenure who will not say anything about this. So as I said, uh, you know, if it weren't for double standards, academia would have no standard standards at all. So at a certain point in the summer of 2022, 20, uh, I decided, uh, as I said, that, uh, uh, you know, certain uh, certain institutions, alas, can't be saved from themselves. But I really believe if just a, a kind of critical mass of people will get together and stand up against this stuff, we could, in fact, uh, eke out some victories. But people are just uh, seem congenitally unwilling to do this. Uh, you know, but academ the, academics the, don't. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this, so this is the, 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 this is a, a rather customary story. Unfortunately, now uh, it yeah. would be if if this if we were talking about an Ivy League school or someplace like Northwestern, but but this is St. Vincent in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, yeah. which was uh, one of those schools that's mentioned that used to be mentioned on the same list as Hillsdale and University of Dallas, and 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 other such schools, Thomas Aquinas. Yes, and we it's. Had and 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 it's it's Benedictine, um, and so I've got a story about my high school to share with you in okay. Illinois. Um, and the uh, president of the university is a priest. So not and by the way, in conservative scholars, I mean people like uh, Peter Wood, National Association of Scholars, uh, you know, talked about your the center that you ran there as like a crown jewel of you know free thought and and uh, focus on you know the great works of Western Civ and so forth. And and then it just goes like that. It goes up like a Roman yeah. candle. So how does what happened there with the board that would install a president, a priest who would behave in the manner that he behaved and allow what happened to happen? I mean, there, there has to be, you know, it seems to me that this moment that you've described after this conference, and by the way, it's not like nobody, everybody knows who David Azarad is in that community. They're, they're, they're saying things they know to be untrue because they're under pressure. Uh, and but, but where is that pressure coming from? How was that pressure allowed to be brought to bear? How did you lose the faculty there? People must have seen that coming for some time and did nothing. It didn't just happen overnight, and it all uh, it all presented itself after that conference. Yeah, this is a very good uh, this is a very good question. I mean, I uh, I describe my situation as kind of uh, you know sort of perfectly given the speed with which it uh, unfolded as perfectly telling the story of the uh, you know collapse of our institutions. This happened over a roughly two year time horizon. As I say, this new president came on board just before the advent of COVID. I think it was in the fall of uh, 2019. Then, of course, COVID turned everything on its head. St. Vincent College uh, on his watch. Um, you know. When through the full, uh, you know, COVID uh, masking madness and, and Zooming courses and so forth. So you couldn't really get uh, a perfect read on the situation. But then when uh, the summer of uh, 2020 came along on top of COVID and there were, uh, you know, riots and actual insurrections in places like Portland and uh, Seattle, of course, this spread to the, um, you know, the leftist faculty members on campus who started to call for, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the rejection of color blindness and holding the institution accountable. For yeah, but how did the, how did all these people how did all these people get there? How were they installed oh, the, in the first place? Yeah, well, the faculty um, 
the faculty had been there, um, you know, the faculty who advocated for these kinds of things had been there uh, prior to the new president. So they, um, although we have a cohort of kind of uh, conservative Western Civ oriented faculty, they're not uh, what I, they're not the majority at St. Vincent by any means. The faculty lean left, but the thing is, the administrations had all always been very sensible. This is the oldest Benedictine college in the country, really the foundation of the Benedictine order in North America, and the administration had really allowed the place to um, have open and, um, you know, heterodox arguments presented on campus. It wasn't until this new president in particular. Right. So who, so where uh, did he come from? And, wh- and where's the board of trustees? Who's on the board? of? Tr- yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to get to like, yeah. who, like wh- where is anybody who does who like can see this train coming up the track saying, yep. you know, hey, folks, uh, there's no way we're going with this guy. We're getting rid of these people. This this is an institution we're going to preserve uh, consistent with its heritage yep. and its stated mission or we're not. And this is the moment where we need to make that decision. I place the blame uh, ultimately squarely uh, on the board. A number of our board members are, uh, uh, you know, are people of the left. One of them attended this particular uh, conference. Her name was Bibiana Birio. She's a failed Democratic uh, Party uh, uh, candidate for Congress in uh, in Pennsylvania, and um, you know, she described the con- most controversial talk as rage-inducing speech. In other words, yeah, right. In, uh, you know, in my view, in the view of many, you can interpret that as, uh, you know, licensing rage as a response to speech. The chairman of the uh, St. Vincent board is none other than the uh, than the chairman, the, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Art Rooney. Uh, oh, my God. He, of course, uh, therefore, is the keeper of the Rooney rule uh, in the NFL. So, um, uh, um, Rooney, uh, you know, the Rooney family. There it is. There's there the responsible yeah. party. Uh, what I, the, you, you know, know, a lot of people think that's got something to do with it, but uh, uh, you know, can uh, you? Uh, yeah. Prove it? Well, there it is. There's the you know that you know. So Bennett Academy, which is where I went to high school in suburban Chicago and Lyle, Benedictines, and they had this moment uh, where they fired a lacrosse coach because she lied on her job application. She's a lesbian. She lied on her job application. She didn't disclose that she, you know, had a relationship that was. Uh, that was inconsistent with uh, Benedictine values as per the employment contract. But she lied on her job application. That's the point. And so she's fired. Then there's a hue and cry from a small group of people, and they reverse the decision. And the this appointed board, which is which has no real power. I mean, it's not you know, this is they don't have policymaking authority. It's run by the Benedictines. It used to be they. um they just they, they they rubber stamped it and they just steamrolled the Benedictines and the Benedictines who have control of the school, along with the yeah. uh, di- the local diocese, they abdicated. They just they right. they, right. they they would not exercise the power they had in that moment to defend who they said they are and who they said and what they said this school was uh, organized and instituted to accomplish. And so they're gone, and, and Benedict's, uh, Benedict's like an independent Catholic school now that's going the way of all these other, uh, uh, you know, uh, liberation sure. theology, yeah. the theologist institutions. Um, and yeah. it's just, I mean, if you, the, 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 the most um, galling thing about the culture now is that those who know and those who have made a a life commitment to the truth through, for example, the priesthood will not stand up to the mob. 
it is the most amazing thing to watch as the Catholic Church and so many Catholic schools are cannibalized by the left. Yes, indeed. As I said, our institutions are in free fall, and it comes down to, it's not so much in, on college campuses or anywhere, really, I think, an intellectual crisis. Sure, there is an intellectual crisis. The wrong things are being taught by the wrong people in the wrong way. But it's fundamentally a moral crisis. The yes. lack of the moral virtue of courage is behind the collapse of our institutions. In the case of St. Vincent, this, um, you know, there are people on the board who are pushing in the leftward direction. There are people on faculty who are pushing in the leftward direction. But there are people in both of those places who are not down with this, some of whom on the faculty side uh, expressed to me that they were appalled by what the president was doing, but they would say nothing publicly. And this is our problem. It is a moral problem, fundamentally. He is Professor Bradley C.S. Watson. Speaking of C.S., C.S. Lewis uh, encourages the formation of every virtue at its testing point, right? Uh, Bradley C.S. Watson teaches at the Van Andel Graduate School of Government at Hillsdale College in D.C. His book, Progressivism, The Strange History of a Radical Idea. Professor Watson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And Amy, thank you for having me. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Only the young can say, yeah, maybe, maybe in Chicago. Um, the topic, the uh, top issue in the Chicago mayor's race is public safety. That's what all the mayoral candidates say. That's what the polling says. Everybody agrees. Yes. We all want to be safe. Nobody wants to get shot. We want the violence to end. And, and the, the majority of people don't feel uh, they're safe, uh, and they have good reason to not feel they're safe because they're not, uh, because we have 700-plus murders uh, the last every year the last three years as uh, the triple threat's been in office. So far this year alone, January over January, we have a 156% increase in car thefts. We have 2,000 car thefts already this year, so this month, like 100 a day. And what's today's date, January 26th? And, you know, car thefts, I know there was a, a lot made of the, the very polite carjacker who said to sir, we're going to take your car. But uh, most carjackings are not quite that polite, and there's often that violence that ensues and people that are victimized uh, in a way that is, uh, extends beyond just losing their automobile. We had one at 5 o'clock this morning in Lakeview. Uber Eats driver got carjacked, robbed, beaten up. There you go. And so what did we hear from all the mayoral aspirants? In last week's debate, what did we hear from them? Going to hire more public police. safety. Public safety is the number one issue. We need to do something very different than has been done the last three years. Obviously, that's why you're running for office because you don't agree with Lori Lightfoot's approach to public safety, right? Is that right? Because I couldn't tell. For example, the Chicago Teachers Union candidate, Brandon Johnson. Here's his answer on his big plans for public safety, to improve public safety. My wife and I were raising our family on the west side of Chicago, and we've recently had to change a, a window from one of the bullets that have come through our home. Now, what you're going to hear on this stage is the same old talking points from 40 years ago that has failed. This so-called toughness. And do you feel any safer? That's why you have to be tough and smart. So I'm calling for what works. 
full investment in youth employment. There's a direct correlation between youth employment and violence reduction, mental health care services, and making sure that we're doing everything in our power to invest in communities. Roderick Sawyer, son of former Mayor Gene Sawyer. We must understand that this is not a both-and approach. Obviously, during safety, we want to make sure we have an effective police force, and having an effective police force, also a constitutionally compliant police force. We want to make sure that they're abiding by the reforms, they have geographic integrity, but we also have to look at what we're doing. We don't talk to children enough when we're talking about youth-related crime. I'm glad that Representative Buckner mentioned the Peace Book because I'm one of the prime sponsors of that, but I am not the architect of it. It's a group of young people that wrote that and made sure that they, if they're part of the problem, they want to be part of the solution. We need to listen more to our youth, engage with them, and really work on that together in order to really ramp down crime. And that's part of our plan. Cam Buckner, Mr. Safety Act himself, co-sponsor, just invoked by Roderick Sawyer. Uh, Yeah, they're perfectly aligned, aren't they? What you'll hear a lot tonight from a lot of my colleagues here is that um, the answer to this is things like drones or militarization of our police force uh, or defunding the, the police. None of these are the right answer. What we have to do is make sure we invest in safety and justice and have a balanced approach. I've put forth a plan called Safer 77 that does exactly that, putting money in communities and the people who are doing the work on the ground. We need to pass the Peace Book Ordinance in the City Council. We need to pass the Anjanette Young Ordinance in the City Council and find ways to invest, once again, in communities and strengthen uh, our law enforcement apparatus so they can do their job in a constitutional way. Those three, they're all office holders. They represent uh, or and or grew up in some of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago in terms of public safety. They got out. You know, Roderick Sawyer went to St. Ignatius. Cam Buckner uh, got out. He's an attorney. Brandon Johnson became a hack for the teachers union and they installed him on the Cook County board and they're supporting him. They all represent uh, majority black communities, neighborhoods that have become shooting galleries. And what's their answer? Well, you heard it. That's going to change the lives, improve the lives, make neighborhoods safer in their wards or commissioner districts or the city that's going to be something different than what we've experienced over the last decade really it's criminal to listen to this i mean it's criminal for what what they're saying and what they're doing it's painful to listen to it and unfortunately there isn't really an alternative vision for the city that is under consideration so It's going to get worse. Bank on it. And if you don't believe us, well, just look at January of 2023, how we're doing so far in the new year. For more on this, please be joined by Raphael Mangual, Senior Fellow and Head of Research for the Manhattan Institute's Policing and Public Safety Safety Initiative and author of Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Mass Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most, Criminal Injustice. Raphael Mangual, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be back. Thank you so much. So um, you, you wrote a piece recently that's right in the wheelhouse here. If you think, essentially, the gist of it is if you think that people like you just heard, these mayoral candidates, if you think that the defund the police, decarcerate the criminals, 
crowd has uh, been chastened in any way by what's happened to big cities in terms of violence, then you would be wrong. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the idea has always been um, you know, that, that these criminal justice reform victories that we've seen across the country over the last decade plus, you know, were really precarious in terms of, you know, their their position within the public psyche. That, you know, the public just at the first sign of trouble, there'd be a backlash and all of these things would be unwound and eroded. And what we've seen is that that's not at all the case. That couldn't be further from the truth. Cities like Chicago, cities like Baltimore, cities like St. Louis, cities like New York, Los Angeles have seen massive upticks in serious crime. And yet the march forward continues. And that's actually one of the most frustrating things, you know, with someone who follows these issues closely for a living, um, is that, you know, the, just the, the, the denseness, the unwillingness to connect the dots, um, the obvious dots, right? I mean, we have lowered the transaction cost of crime. We have raised the transaction cost of enforcing the law. Those efforts have been followed by increases in crime. One would think that some of these candidates that you just, um, you know, aired clips of would would actually prioritize the issues that are staring us all in the face. For example, the fact that in the city of Chicago, the average person charged with a shooting or a homicide has 12 prior arrests. Wow. One in five have more than 20 prior arrests. Right. The problem is not talking to kids or youth employment programs. I mean, sure, you want to do those things do those things. But the major problem facing American cities today on the public safety front is that the criminal justice system has systematically failed to incapacitate people who repeatedly, through their criminal conduct, tell us all that they have no desire to play by society's rules. And until we take them at their word and act accordingly, the crime is going to continue. And in terms of who gets hurt the most, of course, the, the law-abiding families and kids who are caught in the crossfire, who can't get out the way that those three candidates we just played were able to get out for, uh, you know, through one reason or another. You know, the, the, but the problem it seems to me as, and it's, you know, conversation people don't want to have, but you have uh, a lot of people with criminal records and that becomes a constituency, that becomes a voting block. And you combine that voting block with, uh, you know, uh, Mercedes Marxists on the lakefront, you know, sort of uh, rich white leftists who uh, are supposed to who fall into whatever a black politician says, because, well, if they want more money, if they if they say we should do this, if they say we should do that, then I, I, I need to be with them or I'm not, not an ally or I'm not being sensitive or I'm not race conscious and so forth. So they put together this interesting coalition of people who have run afoul of the law and are antagonistic towards police, many of them, for life, and then sort of the the do-gooder, uh, goo-goo, uh, white, rich leftists who have their head ups, have their collective head up their ass. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think well-meaning, you know, quote unquote, progressive wannabe allies are, are certainly uh, causing a lot of trouble here. And, you know, I, I want to make sure I, I emphasize well-meaning. I do think most of these people think that they're doing the right thing. The problem is, is that they don't actually know what they're talking about on this yeah, topic. I mean, right. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with these people where they repeat these, you know, inane talking points that have nothing to do with reality. This idea that we deny second chances systematically in this country, that, you know, we have a mass over-incarceration problem, that police violence is a likely outcome of of citizen interactions, and none of those things are true. 
If you look at the prison population in the United States of America, the typical person coming out of a state prison has between 10 and 12 prior arrests, between five and six prior convictions. These are not people who have been denied second chances. Right? If you look at the, the, the quote-unquote police violence issue, what you find is that you know, police make about 10 million arrests a year. They fire their weapons about 3,000 times a year. They use physical force of any kind, and maybe 2% of those arrests that are affected. And when they do, there's almost never an injury. This is not the story that you get when you turn on the news, when you, you know, walk into a university classroom, and that's really what has to change. And by the way, those convictions, yeah. those multiple convictions for those that's serving time in a state prison or those who are arrested for murder or attempted murder, those convictions are not like we spent a year having to listen to from uh, our governor for moms who stole diapers for their babies and right. for you know somebody smoking a blunt and so on and so forth. These are these are violent crimes. These are a, including property crimes, which is also a form of violence. I know they don't the the, the decarceration crowd doesn't think so, but um, but but the point is these are these are people that are prone to violence and have repeatedly demonstrated such. That's exactly right. I mean, in the reformers, you know, in the reform advocates' mind, everybody's Jean Valjean, right? I mean, but that yeah, couldn't right. be further from the truth, right? Uh, you know, these are people, as you note, you know, who engage in a very wide range of, of criminal offending, including serious violence. I mean, just go in and look at the criminal histories of people charged with homicide in the city of Chicago. You will find lower level property crimes. You will find drug uh, arrests, but you will also find serious crimes like illegal gun possession, unlawful use of a weapon, etc. The system at some point has to draw a line with respect to repeated criminal conduct and say, beyond this point, no more. So how long do you think before things change? You know, this declining quality of life that we have in American cities? You know, it's a it's a tricky question because I think it's going to depend on jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I mean, we saw a little bit of a backlash in San Francisco, but I think San Francisco was a unique case with respect to the Oster Chesapeake Dean because in San Francisco, even the politically well-to-do had to share a significant amount of the cost associated with the, the terrible policies enacted in that city. I mean, you had people living in $6 million bungalows who'd look out their front window and watch somebody defecate on their lawn. So they were sharing in the cost in a way that's unique. Whereas in Chicago, the crime's still relatively concentrated on the, you know, the south and west sides. Although we have seen, you know, really a, a lot of disturbing uptakes along the Mag Mile and, and River North. So my, my sense is that things will have to get significantly worse until people wake up. I, I hate that that's the case because, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's particularly, um, it's, 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 it's really just uh, it's counter to what progressives say they are, they're all about, right? I mean, they, they put themselves forward as racial justice advocates. And if you look at the city of Chicago and you look at, you know, the 10 most uh, dangerous neighborhoods, well, they're 95.7% either black or Latino. And their collective homicide rate in the city of Chicago, again, the 10 most dangerous neighborhoods is 61.7 per 100,000 in 2019. If you take the, the, the 10 safest neighborhoods in the city of Chicago for that year, there were only 47.9% black and Latino, and their collective homicide rate was 1.6 per 100,000. There's a massive disparity in public safety as a benefit. And you would think that this is something that progressives would care about, but they don't seem to. And uh, Washington, D.C., the rewrite of their criminal code, uh, you know, we, we have to look at what other cities do because you have uh, all these big city mayors that are sharing a brain and an approach to uh, public safety. So rewriting their criminal code to drastically reduce the sentences for violent crimes. 
That's exactly right. We're getting rid of mandatory minimums, reducing uh, the top sentence for even violent crimes like carjacking, and also making every single misdemeanor case eligible for a jury trial without any new funding uh, with which to carry out that mandate. I mean, you know, and, and that's just, again, just one example. I mean, New York is proposing all sorts of new criminal justice reforms. There was just the other day, there was a rally for a, a new set of, of reforms called Communities Not Cages, where, you know, again, they want to essentially do the same thing that was done in D.C. by getting rid of, of mandatory minimums and, um, you know, increasing the amount of earned time and allowing judges to, to take a quote-unquote second look at sentences that have already been handed down, including for people serving time for serious violent offenses. I mean, you know, the, the idea that they are going to stop or reach a point at which they're satisfied um, is incredibly misguided. And so the longer the broader public, you know, stays asleep at the wheel here, uh, the further that the, the reformers are going to go and the more harm they're going to do. And uh, here in Illinois, we wait with bated breath for our Supreme Court to rule on the constitutionality of the Safety Act. So we'll see what right. uh, the trajectory of Illinois is going to, not just Chicago, but Illinois as a state is going to be when that decision is rendered. Rafael Mangual, senior fellow and head of research for the Manhattan Institute's Policing and Public Safety Initiative, the author of Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Mass Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Rafael, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.